this exclusive coverage of the Florida Shorn Beach Preservation Association meeting from Hutchinson Island, Florida is brought to you by our good friends at TI Coastal Services, a premier engineering firm in the Southeast Atlantic shoreline. Find them at ticoastal.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Florida Shore and Beach Preservation Association Conference in Hutchinson Island, Florida. This is the Voices of the Conference segment. We are talking to people attending the conference, professionals who are here to, to showcase their products, their, pro, their programs, and their companies, and also to attend all of the great sessions and learn some things about what's going on in the Florida coastline. I am really happy to have two really great guests. Uh, Harvey Sasso is the president of Coastal Systems International, a, a coastal consulting firm, and with him, his colleague, Maria McBride, who's also with Coastal Systems International. Hey, you guys, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So anyway, Harvey, as the president of the company, your time is obviously precious. What makes you take time out of your day to attend FSBPA? Well, I've been coming to FSBPA for, uh, uh, hate to say it, but a, a few decades now. And um, it's, uh, it's just one of those conferences that the coastal engineering community typically goes to. Uh, it's really where you get updated on you know, the latest technology, the latest projects, uh, uh, what's happening from a technological point of view in terms of uh, design of projects. And then, of course, uh, you typically get uh, you know, representation from the state and from, from the feds, right. Corps of Engineers, and, and you know, talking about their projects and their funding of projects. So it, it gives you a pretty comprehensive overview of what's happening in the state and um, you know, what's happening on the, on the funding front. But, uh, and of course, now we've been coming for so long that you also have you know, colleagues and friends that you've known for, for, for decades. So and that's one of the good parts about this conference, as I've heard... Uh, well known for its reception, which will be this evening, which we will get to shortly. Uh, well, Harvey, introduce our audience around the country to Coastal Systems International. What uh, what is the special? What makes your firm special? Well, we've we've specialized in coastal engineering. That's that's been our forte. Of, we've always enjoyed coastal engineering and uh, issues relating to the beach and sand movement and water and hurricanes and. Uh, and, uh, and then all the, the structures associated with it, the uh, marinas and piers and uh, different types of shore protection structures, it, it sort of, it's, you, you get passionate about it and you'll find that most of the coastal engineers tend to be passionate about their, their profession. Uh, it, it tends to be, you know, not quite black and white, but it's a little bit more gray, it's a little mm -hmm. bit of science or a lot of science, but a little bit of art. and. Um, and it's really rewarding when you can uh, when you can actually design something and, and see it perform. So that that perhaps is the basis of it. That's a great description. I've always thought of uh, coastal engineering as the most artful of engineering disciplines. Um, one of the aspects that comes out of that attribute of the profession is uh, when you're in a public meeting with folks and you're trying to explain a design, which I've been in many public meetings with engineers explaining beach restoration designs and beach profiles is, uh, you know, someone will stand up and say, you know what, you know what you should really do? This is a common commentary. And I always thought, you know, what was it like for the guys who were designing a bridge? Do they ever, does everybody, anybody ever get up and say, let me tell you how to design a bridge? The answer to that is no, that never happens. Right. But in coastal engineering, because people are so intimately familiar with what you're working on, uh, which is a sand system that they love to put their towel on and their kids play on, they have, a, they have a sense that they understand it, and 
it can be frustrating as a professional, I think, from time to time to, uh, you know, there is, a, there, is a, there is an art, but there is also a science to coastal engineering. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. We've, we've been in front of, uh, uh, you know, many a client and, and many a municipality, and there, there's always somebody that's got an opinion. And, um, you know, I've always said, in fact, that part of a lot of coastal engineering is also managing the personalities and managing all the all the different entities involved whether it be mm -hmm. your clients the funding agencies the regulatory agencies it, it's a real challenge to bring consensus amongst that group to actually get something done it's probably the hardest part of coastal engineering is to build that yeah. consensus I, it's absolutely 100 percent the case it it is there has to be a sufficient shared understanding of the problem and what the solution is and it takes a lot of work to engage the public and the decision makers often to come to an understanding that, that they can support. And uh, it's just, as you know, the most dynamic engineering environment I think there is, is, right. is coastal engineering. It's, it's, it, I wouldn't say the most, but it's certainly, uh, that's what makes it fun. It's just fun to bring people together. And as you said earlier, I mean, if, so if you hired an engineer to design a bridge, He'd say, okay, you know, generally what sort of type of bridge and okay, here's your design and, and that's it. You design it, it gets built and everybody's right. happy. Well, let's talk about, so how long have you been, Harvey, a coastal engineer? I, if you don't mind me saying, we can go one decade, two or three. More than three. More than three. So what I'm interested in is how has this profession evolved and changed over your 30 plus years of being a practitioner? Well, that's a tough question. Um, <clears throat> you, you know, it's changed, but it hasn't changed. You know, the issues are the same. Uh, you know, there's beach erosion, there's storms, there's sediment loss, there's inlet management, and um, there are funding issues. And, and frankly, you know, for three decades, it's been pretty much the same problem. Right. Um, same problem, yeah. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. The challenges are pretty consistent. Technology may have changed. The numerical modeling is a little bit better. The data collection, a lot of really understanding the coastal processes and sand movement and what's really happening on the coastline yeah. comes back to uh, some empirical data in terms of, you know, what were the profiles? How much did the shoreline change from one year to the next? How did it change after a particular storm? Right. And perhaps that's a bit of the art. You can certainly run the science and yeah. look at the volumetric changes, but at the end of the day, yep. they don't give you, it's not one plus one equals two. Right. You, you know, the, my talk today was certainly all about uh, developing a regional sediment budget for Palm Beach County and uh, really trying to understand, put the puzzle together. And, and maybe that's what makes it fun. It's, uh, it, it's, not, uh, it's not a precise science. There's yeah. always, uh, you've got to sort of come up with a, a thesis of what you think is happening and then you're constantly testing your thesis. So you're looking at the volumetric changes, you're looking at the characteristics of sand bypassing at the inlets, you're validating that, you're looking at segments from one segment to the other where perhaps you know the boundary conditions, which are the inlets, yeah. and then you look at how much sand renourishment has happened in between, huh. and then you try to get a balance. Uh, you know, sand, it's mass balance, uh, it's conservation of mass. Right. You can't lose sand, you can't gain sand. One of the sand. great rules of uh, physics. Exactly. The conservation of mass. Right. Uh, so better tools, certainly over the, in the 30 years, the ability, the, the data available, yes. you know, computer modeling, the sophistication of hydrodynamic modeling now is incredible. Yes. Uh, but there's a couple, there's another thread out there that 
that seems to be changing, and depending on who you talk to, and it has to do with sea level rise. I mean, is this a real issue in the profession? Is it something that in your designs and in your analysis that you now account for? And when did it start to become something that you specifically tried to build into your approaches to problems? Well, it's interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's people have been talking about it for a decade, uh, but really I've seen uh, an uptick in the focus and the concern and the recognition of the reality of climate change. Really, I would say almost less than two years where mm -hmm. you know all of the industries and municipalities, we're working with City of Miami Beach right now and looking at their historic preservation uh, districts and, and you know what are the implications to that. Uh, with, with, a, with a real eye on climate change and sea level rise. And, of course, recently with the recent, you know, significant Category 5 storms we've seen in the Bahamas and Scary. Mexico Beach. You know, there have been yeah. only four Category 5 storms hitting Florida. And, um, you know, part of that is also, you know, bringing more awareness to, uh, so you know, not just sea level rise, but warmer oceans, uh, right. slower-moving hurricanes, uh, more, more intense storms. And um, all of that is contributing to, uh, you know, this greater sensitivity to people's vulnerability yeah. and their resiliency. You know, what's your ability to recover and how quickly can you recover after a storm? So that's a lot of what we're looking at today. Well, I know you're in, on a short uh, time frame, but I, I wanted to talk about resiliency. And what I think uh, in terms of people's understanding, awareness and, and interest in uh, uh, accounting for sea level rise in part is a function of their experience with it. Uh, there is now blue sky flooding or whatever the words are now, king tides. Uh, cities all along the Atlantic seaboard are experiencing more days of uh, flooding, not from rainstorms, but from tide conditions that are new. And I know this is a huge issue down in Miami. You've mentioned that you guys are the lead engineering firm for, what is it, Miami and Dade County on this. What, tell us about your, what you're going to be asked to do for, for the city of Miami. Well, really, the project that we've recently worked on is with the city of Miami Beach. Ah. And uh, their uh, the concern for impacts to their historical districts. You have the Flamingo District and you have the um, uh, Collins Waterfront District with some very old buildings. Uh, and of course, uh, the elevation, let's say in South Beach, goes from three feet above sea level to six feet above sea level at Ocean Drive. Wow. Uh, but we've got um, a predicted storm surge with the 100-year storm closer to 13 and a half feet. Ugh. And then when you superimpose your, your wave climate on top of that, you're looking at some fairly substantial uh, elevations of water. But if you take out the wave element and you just look at the storm surge of 13 and a half feet, uh, <clears throat> then with, with floor levels at uh, three to five feet, yeah. we're going to see significant flooding. But when you factor in the sort of uh, projections for sea level rise up to um, you know, one, and a half, one, 1 1.1 feet in, in 20 years and 2.2 or 3 in 40 years and three and a half, and, and that's sort of a median estimate, I, I Think yeah. it may be higher than that, but when you factor that in and put that on top of, so if you look at your 100-year storm with 13 and a half feet of, of surge, plus uh, a 50-year projection of three feet, then you're looking at uh, you know 16 to 17 feet of storm surge in 50 years. In fact, we did a case study. That's uh, for, frightening. Yeah, I mean, that is truly, as an engineer or as a community, a stunning prospect. Correct. 
But um, you know, when you look at the economics of the city, you know, a lot of that has to do with that preservation of that district. So we're part. We're really uh, not the lead engineer. We're part of an architectural team, that and we're guiding. We're just giving our input on on the storm surge and the okay. climate change influences and the potential impacts. But essentially, it comes down to the economics. And and one of the challenges that that we I think we're going to see really around all of Florida, uh, in terms of vulnerability, is what do you do? I mean, Mexico Beach right. just uh, you know they had buildings in X zones. Uh, right. that were totally destroyed. And uh, so the, the philosophy is that you've got to look for ways to perhaps raise those buildings. Right. But when you, when you look at the cost of raising all the buildings, let's say on Miami Beach, you're talking about billions, if not trillions of dollars. Right. So part of the thinking needs to be, how do we incentivize the private sector to do it? Well, I think you brought up a really important point here, and I and I and this is when I when I look down the road, at what the professionals that do this for a living, yourself and all of the many other folks attending here, at the conference, uh, there's going to be a differentiation at some point between urban shorelines and how those res are responded to, and more urban, more rural, or let's say residential shorelines, Mexico Beach, for example, many barrier islands where the value of the property, as you said, it's about the economics. What is the appropriate response given the financial uh, give and take, the benefits to be derived, the amount of property at risk? And it, there's just no doubt in my mind that that's going to break differently in Miami Beach or in Boston or in Houston or in San Francisco. And we've talked to folks from around the country. The Corps of Engineers is going to put $20 billion into Galveston Bay. There's a $10.5 billion proposal for Lower Manhattan. I mean, those expenditures are probably, without doubt, justifiable by the folks who sit around with the pencils and sharpen them and count things. Uh, but what is it going to be like for Hutchinson Island? I mean, here we have an island that is fairly lightly developed. I mean, as a professional, let me ask you this. I mean, put yourself 10 years down the road. What do you think the, the professional engineering community is going to be recommending? What are the options? I mean, can we, can we handle this? It's, it's pretty frightening to think about. Well... Uh, fortunately for Florida, we have what's referred to as the Coastal Construction Control Line, and that represents the limit of impact associated with the 100-year return period storm. Yeah. And any buildings that are built seaward of that line are required to uh, be built to a certain standard to, you know, such as the, the structural support members for the habitable structure needs to be above the top of the breaking wave crest associated with the 100-year storm. Uh, but as I said, in the last couple of years, we're now starting to look out and say, okay, well, where are we going to be in 10, 20, and 30, 50 years out? Right. And uh, we are now, you know, even though the, the state has not done this, if we're looking at a particular project, we may be suggesting to our developers to start looking at designing to the 500-year storm, which is, which is equal to the 100-year storm plus sea level rise over the next 50 years. And that starts to be equal to today's 500-year storm. That's great. So the little bit of perspective thinking going on there, and we're starting to see this in, in some of the things we're covering in Coastal News today, where real estate investment trusts and other major property developers are starting to factor in climate change risk as a financial variable right. in investment decisions. And this is certainly happening in Miami, 
we've read about the change in property values on the coastal low-lying properties versus, say, Little Haiti or the higher ground properties in the city of Miami, which are being bought by developers now mm -hmm. in anticipation. What, what, I mean, the premium used to be proximity to the water. And I think the new premium is going to be elevation. And, uh, and I think that's going to change the investor community and then therefore what you as the designing engineers and the guys helping them figure out what to do are going to be looking at this a little differently now. Yeah, but you know, I, I hear that and I see that, and that's the. Do you do you see it? I mean, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, it, I mean, they they bought up a big chunk of Little Haiti recently, and but <clears throat> you know, water's water, and people love water. Yeah, I love water, yeah. and uh, so you know, to think that you're going to attract people into the the middle of the state because it's safer. Uh, again, I think it's economics, and I think that you know when you look at the economic base, just south of Dade Canal, you're looking at a twenty billion dollar uh, resort industry, uh, plus an indirect resort re revenue of another ten billion. So you're yeah. talking thirty billion dollars. Yeah. And uh, yes, so you know the, the the South Beach is low, but there's a tremendous economic engine. Right. And I think that you know, if you run the numbers, it might make sense to say, let's incentivize the private sector hmm. to not run away, but let's have them maybe want to put some extra square footage, so lose the ground floor, but get right. two new floors. There we go. So that now, we, instead of losing the tax base in terms of reduction in, in property value, yeah. you actually incentivize them through some code writing to want to then build more, yeah. but recognizing that the lower floor is vulnerable, yeah. So now you increase your tax base, you, you, you have a plan to flood-proof or abandon the lower level or jack up the building, right. and then in that process, you, are, you, you can afford to jack up or change the building, lose that floor in exchange for the additional income, and then the increased revenue that comes from, from, right. from the additional real estate, plus by, having, uh, by now making it more flood-proof, you're actually your credits from a flood insurance perspective go right. up instead of down. Yeah. So you're now incentivizing life there, and the increased revenue maybe can go back now into reinvestment into infrastructure. And as crazy as it sounds, it, you know, it may not be that expensive to raise all the roads and increase the infrastructure yeah. in, in an incremental basis. So hmm. I don't think it's a matter of just saying, hey, I've made a conclusion. Let's, uh, yeah. let's, let's move to middle Florida. I think let's, let's look at the economics a little bit more closely. And, right. and to your point, you know, some smaller municipalities without that sort of economic engine, maybe they don't have those sort of choices. But some of the mm -hmm. more developed areas, I, I think there's some, some options, but... I think we need to, you need to go start going really deep on the economics and the, right. and, the, and the risk. But no matter what, we've got to still solve this carbon problem. I mean, th we're talking about a Band-Aid for the next 50 years. Yeah. So we, we've, got to, we've got to also, nobody's talking about what can we do to, to extract some of the carbon that, that's, that's... Well, there, 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 you know, there's a surprising amount of energy. It's not talked about much in America at the International Ocean, at the EarthX conference in Dallas, Texas, which is headed by Trammell Crow, whose father was a major, major Texas mm -hmm. developer. Mm -hmm. His son is a big environmentalist, is trying to get Republicans around the country to take seriously climate change, and he puts on this major conference called EarthX. Mm -hmm. 100,000 people come to this. Sure. It lasts about a month. It's amazing. But he brings in some of the, the real cutting-edge scientists who are working on carbon sequestration and the investments that are being made quietly, including Trump's tax cut and, and in that bill, 
the IRS code, it's called 45Q, and I always tell people, Google this up and read what IRS code provision 45Q is all about, because we're about to pay the oil and gas industry to get into the CO2 extraction mm. and deep carbon and deep uh, geologic sediment isolation of carbon yes. uh, along the coast of America, because that's where the right sediments are. It's very interesting, but I'm getting far afield. I, Lois Edwards, I asked Lois, my friend here at the conference, I said, who do I need to talk to while I'm here? And she said, you got to talk to this guy, Harvey Sasso. And I just found out why. I think the perspective that you just offered is one of the more forward-thinking ones I've heard in talking to people about the issue. And I think you're quite right. Um, retrofitting buildings, vertical retreat in those situations, I mean, that's what's really going to happen we're not going to abandon the city that uh, Miami. We are not going to abandon New York City. We're not abandoning Boston or San Francisco. And the amount of money required to tackle this from an engineering standpoint is justified given the economics. They really are. So this is about this is the next big horizon. So the question I want to ask you, do you feel like the profession that you are in and then in the professional community, do you think are you guys ready uh, to tackle this problem. What, what do you think about the state of the art as the thinking uh, really started to emerge to, t to take on this new problem in this new way? Well, state of the art, uh, there's the, the technology's there. there. There's no new state of the art. Um, it's really just uh, coming to grips with the reality of what we're facing. Uh, I think it's human nature to, you know, we, we, you know, we just see it as such a big problem, we don't want to think about it. So what, what we have to do is, as in terms of coming to grips is to say, okay, we've got a problem and let's figure out how to solve it. And we've, a lot of smart people you yeah. know, understand the economics. I don't think it's a difficult problem to understand. Right. It's all about economics and making the economics work. Mm -hmm. But I, I do want to make a point, though, that, again, uh, we're, we're looking at a, a, you know, as time goes on, the problem gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. And therefore, the cost to resist gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. So we really need to recognize that we're looking at a 40 or 50 year horizon where I think, you know, the, 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 the pallet's set. I mean, what's going to happen is going to happen. I believe that's correct as well. Uh, but so in, in, in sort of dealing with uh, responding and making the communities more resilient at the same time, I think we need to give equal voice to carbon removal. Right now, and I think in the last couple of years, the globe, in, on an annual basis, put out 35 billion tons of carbon globally. Right. America put out 5.4 billion. Yeah. China put out 9 billion on a per capita basis. Obviously, America's putting out more. Yeah. But, but when you look at that, uh, you, you have to deal with how do we deal with 5.4 billion uh, tons of carbon? Yeah. Some of the technology to remove carbon uh, is running at about well, anywhere from 100 to 200, some, sometimes higher. But... I think we can get that down to $100 uh, uh, a ton. Uh, reforestation is maybe $30 a ton. Right. Translating that to a dollar per to a gallon on what does it cost for a gallon? If you run the numbers, it's about $100 a ton is about a dollar a gallon. Yeah. So if you were to say to people, look, we, we need to do something. If we raise the price of gas by a dollar, you know, there's some there's some percentage of your in, uh, you know of your revenue that's coming out of your pocket. Yeah. But we've got to put money back into removing carbon. Otherwise, the 50 to 100 year horizon is going to be a lot more difficult to deal with. I think that's quite right. And uh, there's a lot of folks around the country. I think the public hasn't been quite brought up to speed to that understanding. And I think in the political system, 
there's still a, a level of denial and wishful thinking. Uh, and it is complicated, so I, I don't want to say it's so plainly obvious because it, it is a sophisticated uh, uh, understanding that you have to come to. Uh, but wh when you talked about effective and successful coastal engineering, you mentioned the, the, the engineering technique is not the hardest part of it. It is really this, as you said, getting all of the players, the funders, the permitters, the community, the political class, the investors, everybody to sort of get on the same page. And I'm wondering, as you go into this, let's talk about resiliency and about the implementation of new strategies that are more forward thinking. Uh, how close are we to having communities that are prepared for that discussion? Well, it's it's already started. And, and certainly Miami Beach recognizes, you know, their risk and I would say they're, you know, very uh, forward-thinking, and they've been focused tremendously on on responding and understanding. Um, my experience is that um, in just dealing with various clients, uh, that people are understanding it. Uh, people want to deal with it. They want to invest in it to to start doing something. Great. But we, but some of the smaller communities, uh, you know, where it does take some investment to understand it, they're a little bit slower. Um, it's it started. I, I can't tell you right yeah. now that I think that we 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 have a clear direction. Uh, we're just trying to. I think it starts to come back to how do you pay for it? Really, it's economics. You how bet. do you pay for it? Yeah. And uh, so it's uh, and and that's a challenge for some of the smaller municipalities. Mexico Beach had a, had a their total income was like three million a year. You right. know, I mean, what can you do with three million a year? Not much. When you've got four or five hundred million dollars of, of real estate product right. and value. So, um, so those smaller communities are going to be more challenged, uh, but uh, you know, you know I'm, I think we're just going to have to uh, we're going to have to start setting aside funds. We're going to have to set aside funds, and if you look at if you take the hundred dollars a, a, a ton to remove, times the five uh, the five point four billion tons, you're looking at about a half a trillion dollars. And yeah. let's say it goes to two hundred dollars a ton for removal. That's a trillion dollars. So we're talking about you know two and a half to five percent of America's GDP of nineteen twenty trillion mm -hmm. to go towards starting to look at extraction and removal of carbon. Right. I think that this whole issue is is going to have to become more economic in terms of what are the municipalities worth to you know Florida as a whole and uh, and 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 to the federal government as a whole. And by the way, right now, FEMA, uh, you know, if, if you're covered under their federal insurance program, yeah. FEMA's picking up the tab, which really means Congress is picking up the tab, yeah. which is a whole other discussion. Because, whole other discussion. Because it's, it's not a risk-based policy no, uh, basis. It's a big problem, I think, and, and there has been tremendous investment on the American shoreline around the Gulf Coast, particularly with Hurricane Harvey. Uh, when we have these disasters, billions of dollars flow out of the federal government, right, but right. they're coming out in crisis situations without the forethought of, of what the engineers do best, which is let's identify the problem, figure out what the three best options are, pick the best one, and right. increment and incrementally put some steps right. in place. Right. This disaster-based funding uh, method that is the principal way of federal revenue reaching the United States shoreline right now, I think is, is, is not long for the world. We have got right. to get out of that. Right, exactly. Before long. Exactly. Um, well, what, what will happen, and it's pretty clear, and it, everybody's expecting it, is that um, eventually Congress is going to say, 
th this is crazy. I, I was looking at some numbers, and, and just if you look at all the disasters of, of, of storms and, and cyclones and uh, uh, hailstorms and tornadoes and fire, yeah. the number for a few years ago was about $320 billion a year. Right. So when you look at that against possibly investing half a trillion to start correcting the problem, we're not far apart. Right. But that curve of damage is, is, is exponential. It's not linear. That's right. So that means that if we were 300 billion recently, we're going to be 600 to a trillion dollars in terms of that, what you just mentioned, which right. was the reinvestment for simply recovering and yeah. paying for damage recovery. Right. Congress is therefore going to say, we got to stop this. We have to go to a risk-based insurance and you're going to find premiums going up fivefold. Well, wouldn't it be great, Harvey, if we could do that with, without getting to the crisis point where absolutely. we've absolutely, you know, at the last minute said, you know, we just can't do it anymore. Right. We, we've got the foresight. And one of the great challenges in public policy is to act before the crisis demands. That is the number one problem right. in political decision making. Right. Um, and this is a case where we, we, this is not a lack of information. We understand what the risks are. We do understand we need to act proactively. It sounds like Miami Beach and what you're working on with them is an example of that. And let's hope more coastal communities around the country follow that lead. I think a lot's going to depend, Harvey, on how successful you are and the city is because if this stuff works and they spend less money and these communities are safer, it will be followed. That path can be lit and folks will start walking down it. So I'm all of the engineering firms that are working <laughs> on this really tough problem right now, I'm all, you know, I'm wishing them all well. Like right. we need some successes here. We sure. need to show that the investments make sense. Right. Um, well, I would, I, I would be remiss because Harvey, I was good enough to uh, convince Harvey to, and Mariah McBride to come on in and they've brought in a third member of uh, Coastal Systems International, Adriana uh, Cabrera, is that right? Cabrera, and who's the environmental permitting department head for the firm. Welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. Thank you so much. Well, I don't, you know, I hope you don't mind, but uh, I am looking forward. Mariah and I are going to do a sit down interview on sargasm. She's a specialist on that topic. And for folks who haven't followed it, uh, the sargasm problem in the Caribbean and in South Florida this year has been incredibly difficult to contend with and has really changed the tourism economics in Mexico particularly. And I think it'd be great to understand that. I truly do not, Mariah. I'm like, where the hell is all this seaweed and why is it all of a sudden here? I keep, think, I keep hearing it's from river sediments and nutrients from either Africa or South America. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. So I'm looking forward to talking to Mariah. And uh, Adriana, tell us what you do at the firm. What are you, what are you up to? Well, I'm the environmental Specialist. I do all the permit processing for um, for the company uh, with regards to uh, development of marinas, uh, buildings. Uh, actually, uh, this wonderful hotel we're in right now was permitted by our office. We pulled all the environmental permits on it. It took us a uh, couple of years. We had to go through some back and forth with the state on what they would allow us to develop on this beachfront uh, property. But uh, it's one of the specialties we do in-house, and we're very happy to do it. Well, Adriana, I was at, when I worked for Coastal Tech and I, a bunch of engineers. My job was to get the permits too, and do the EISs and all of the. And and, and this is the hard part, Harvey. I got to tell you, you need to pay her more because I can tell you the permitting process is a nightmare and doesn't matter. And look, DEP, as good as they are, and the Corps, 
as you know, this is where the rubber meets the road in, ter road in terms of the, the perceptions of the public and, and coming to a consensus. So I have a great appreciation, Adriana, for the difficult work that you do uh, for the firm. And uh, the, the, the engineers don't like to talk to the public and regulators. They hire people like us to do that for them and keep them out of trouble. Exactly. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, so pleased to have on the American Shoreline podcast, the Coastal Systems International team, President Harvey Sasso, Maria McBride, their specialist on sargasm, and Adriana Cabrera. Uh, we thank you very much for joining us and enjoy the conference. Pleasure. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, learning more about what you guys are up to in the future. Thank you. Great to contribute.